This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein and Go-Go. You are listening to 3RRR. I'm Dr. Shane. In the studio with me is Dr. Ray. Good morning, sir. Good morning, Dr. Shane. Good to have you in again. You were in last week, weren't you? Was it the week I before? think I was. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, just good to see we've both got good memories yeah, yeah. <laughs> for a whole week. And Dr. Laura is actually in country. Can't remember when you saw me last. Well, yeah, great um, to be here. Yep, yeah, and you, you're recovering from concussion. <laughs> yep, uh, but my voice hasn't slowed down. Oh, it's still... It's, yeah, the, yeah. We didn't knock the accent out of you? Didn't knock the accent out, still sounding British. Yeah. <laughs> but glad to be here. <laughs> was was tell- that a, you know, about, you know, when you come to, oh, hello, damn, still sound British. <laughs> 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 that was the colleagues around her. Yeah. Uh, um, so, so tell us what happened. What did you do? You, you're obviously. Oh, you, it was for science. It was for science. <laughs> it was. It was for science. Um, got hit in the head by a door. I would love a better story than that. Oh, well, yeah. you could tell a better story. It's a lack of imagination <laughs> on your part. Yeah, I now have a lack of imagination because yeah. oh. my, my, my thoughts are a little slow. It's a little slow now. <laughs> <There's>, <laughs> folks, uh, Liv's doing our Twitter feed, so if you want to tweet in an appropriate story for Laura's head, <laughs> head damage that she can tell to her scientific colleagues other than I got hit by a door, which we all know is code for... Yeah, anyway, um, <laughs> you got to watch saying that. People say, really? You got hit by a door? Really? Mm-hmm. Mm, okay. Who was that? Sure. Yeah. Witnesses? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, oh, oh. You got to need a much better story. Anyway, we're going to get into some science news. We have a couple of really good guests waiting out in the green room, which we will uh, get to a little bit later, but uh, let's start off with some science. What has your concussed brain got for us today, madam? <laughs> well, I found, I found a story which I find really cool. Um, I hope other people find it really interesting. Actually, I think people will find this one interesting. Actually, I, I pitched it last night to some people at the pub. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I like this How one. How drunk were they? <laughs> <laughs> it was, I was going to say it was in the day. Actually, that makes it sound worse. Um, so I really like this story because actually it's, it's actually really nicely scientifically done. So some researchers at Cornell University in New York, they found that obesity is linked with fewer taste buds. Now, this has been known for... Shane's got really? a bit of a frown on. No, I'm just trying to work that out. So obesity is linked with fewer taste buds, as in you had fewer taste buds before or No, after? no, no. It's because of the obesity, and they oh, link okay. it really well. And that's why, I, as a scientist, I really love this study. It's really well done. So it's already known that obesity can impact on taste. But in this study, they had experimental animals, and they split them into two groups. They put one group on a high-fat diet and one group normal diet and then eight weeks later they measure the amount of taste buds that you have now we know that say in humans we've got thousands of taste buds they all kind of have receptors Mm. which you know um simulate kind of the different tastes that we um can taste like sour and sweet etc um but these guys are always cycling every 10 days they'll grow and they'll die off the taste buds which is why if you burn your uh on that cup of tea if ray if that's hot if you burn off your taste buds they'll grow back pretty quickly Mm. Now, what they found in these um, obese mice eight weeks after putting them on this, on this high-fat diet, and you should see the pictures of the mice. They're hilarious, these mice. They get really, really fat within eight weeks. So yeah, I don't they're know the ones where the, the legs just kind of poke yeah, out to yeah, the side. Yeah, these tiny, tiny yeah, legs, and they're really huge mice. It's, really, really cute. It's but cruel. they have 25% less taste buds in eight weeks. Okay. So they measured the amount of taste buds. And then 
And then importantly, they ask why, and what they find is that um, in the obese mice, there's a buildup of fatty tissue called adipose, and adipose is releasing all these chemical mediators called cytokines, and as an mm. immunologist, one of my favourite is, is um, TNF-alpha, it's an inflammatory mediator, and it causes a lot of inflammation. And in the obese mice, they're finding that all the secretion of this TNF-alpha is actually killing off the taste buds. Wow. Good news is this would be reversible, of course, because the taste buds are always cycling. Yep. But these guys, they do the proper experiment. So if you take mice and you make them genetically modified to not have this TNF-alpha protein, then they find that the obese mice, they don't lose all their taste buds. And then they go the other way around and they take the lean mice and mm. they inject TNF-alpha oh, into and them and they, and they lose their taste buds. Wow. It's an incredible study. So, is, this, is this an evolutionary plus? Like if you have less taste buds, are you less likely to eat? eat like, much. is this, an, is no, this actually a well, response this is, to, to, to curb obesity? Yeah, yeah. Or is it just a, well, an outcome of the inflammation? Yeah, I, I, know, I know where you're going with this. I mean, kind of one thing that they kind of propose in this study, which really kind of turns this notion on their head that, you know, people who are eating more, maybe it's because they really love food. And they said, well, actually, it's the other way around. It's because for them to get the pleasure sensation, the dopamine kick, they actually need to eat more. Oh. to actually get oh, the pleasure. to get past the yeah, taste bud reduction. So they're calling yeah. it a taste dysfunction. Mm, that's very interesting. There must be a whole range of other disorders with regards to taste beyond just what's happening with obesity, though, presumably that this would play into. Well, yeah, because the elderly, you've got less yeah. taste, cancer patients. Mm, mm. So it'd be nice if we could switch it back on. Yeah. yeah. Or, or I'd, I'd like to just switch it up. You know, like just... <laughs> Give, give me this gene therapy so everything just tastes that much really better. good yeah because you, you know our, our taste is also dependent on our environment you know like yep. if you're if, if you're in a really awful environment and you eat something it, you you know we perceptually don't like it as much because taste of course isn't flavor because it's you yeah. know taste plus smell plus, it's yeah flavor. plus everything yeah and so if you're in an amazing environment you know like i don't know I'm sure we could think one up if we had enough time. But, uh, you know, things tend to taste better. We tend to get more experience out of things. So we could just turn this shit up. You know, yep. that would be, I'd be all for that. <laughs> smell of a steakhouse in Texas. Uh, yeah. You know, it tastes so what good, a, but it's not a You're smell. walking into a door. Do, exactly. do a lot of Texans even still have taste buds with the amount of insane, the obsession with insane hot sauces? Mm, yeah. I don't know if that, that, that burns out that as a sense. Well, they're burning it off, but now we know they're recycling and coming back. Yeah, so you can go back to the same state the <laughs> yeah. following day. Mm. Interesting stuff. Well, I love that sort of science, though. I love the switch it off, switch it on thing. Yeah, and they it's do really, it right. It's nice. It's yeah. really um, it's, it's well understood. Good That's group. cool stuff. Yeah, good group. Dr. Ray, what do you uh, got? Dr. Shane, um, <laughs> a story about helium. Oh. No, and I didn't. I should have brought a balloon. Right. So, uh, you know, to, you know helium for me, I always say to people when they, they talk about helium, I say, well, one of the most abundant elements in the universe, and we've got none of it. Exactly. That's yeah. actually, yeah. Uh, that's kind of fascinating. So hydrogen and helium are the most abundant. And for uh, the Earth, it's not a renewable resource. Mm. It's, you can't synthetically make it. It comes from the decay of uranium. Most of it's recovered on Earth from natural gas. So mm. when it comes through natural gas, it's actually separated. In fact, we have a, a helium shortage in Earth on horizon. Should we stop making the balloons? Oh, yeah, possibly. Okay. Because it, so in 1925, the U.S. had developed this, had established this strategic helium supply. Mm. And it was the largest concentration of helium. But it said it had to be sold off by 2015. And they sold it for way less money because they wanted to recover the cost for making the, the storage system. And um, it's, it's actually, it's not a renewable resource. There's projections of in 30 years of having a helium shortage 
Uh, and and so and there's only yep. a couple sources to recover it from. And what and, would you what would you need helium for? Let me oh, just uh, think. Um, would it be MRI machines, yes. for example? Not just party balloons. <laughs> yeah. No, it's, it's not. Yeah, I've just yeah. had an MRI too. Right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> MRIs, no NMRs, anything anything superconducting cooling. where you need cooling. Yeah. Mm. Um, very cold. Uh, use liquid helium. So it, it's quite a challenge. Mm. And and part of that is when helium gets released into our atmosphere. It's so light, Up. it boils off. Bye-bye. <laughs> it, it actually leaves. Yeah, yeah. And, and so the Earth is slowly leaching out its helium. Now, and, and we have very little of it. So if you were you, an astronomer, you wouldn't really see it from far away. But this story about helium is actually about an exoplanet called WASP-107b. I don't know if they say, is it WASP-107b mm. or W... One of my personal favorites. Exactly. <laughs> well, anyway, it, it, it's actually a, a planet where... It has what you could describe it as a big, puffy atmosphere. Uh, it's, it's interesting. It's the size of Jupiter, but it has much less of a density or, or mass than Jupiter. So its density is less. So it has this atmosphere that can go, uh, it's quite large, I think um, hundreds of kilometers um, away from the planet. And so with the Hubble, Hubble telescope in 2017, researchers from Exeter and, and Cambridge were looking at this planet, and they were looking for methane. And they got this really big peak in the IR region of 1.08 microns, and it actually turned out it was helium. <clears throat> and it's the first time in an exoplanet, one where they think it could support life, they've actually observed helium leaching from an atmosphere. And they weren't expecting it. It was kind of a, well, we're looking for methane. What is that um, moment? And, and they kind of went, oh, my gosh, it's helium. Because in, in 2000, researchers from MIT had speculated that a planet like this ought to exist and you ought to be able to see helium coming from it. And they thought in 2003, they thought, oh, we found one, but they hadn't. But instead, from the Hubble from last year, they actually found helium coming out of this mm -hmm. atmosphere. And it confirms a lot of the models of that area. Uh, because normally you, you would expect helium and hydrogen, as you said, most abundant elements in the universe, on big gas giants. You normally see it there. But to see it on something with a, a lower mass is unusual. Mm -hmm. um, and the other reason they were excited about this is because it's an IR peak for helium and they know where to look now, you don't have to use the Hubble. Because it doesn't get obscured right. in the Earth's atmosphere, so you can do it from land-based telescopes yeah, as well. Because cool. there's a lot more of those, frankly. Yeah, yeah, just a few. Yeah, I hear there's a nice one in Hawaii called Keck. Um, yeah, uh, and so it was. It was just kind of this aha moment where they wait. That's not what we thought it was, and 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 it's it's actually. I mean, the details are. It's a special kind of helium, because it's a helium that has to be irradiated from a bright star. It's kind of in a metastable state from radiation. So you had to find this type of planet. And they've only found four of this type of exoplanet with this density and big mm. atmospheres. And it had to be close enough to a bright star to irradiate the helium so they could actually see it. Mm. It's super cool stuff. I mean, we can make helium here on Earth with, you know, if we build that fusion reactor that yeah. we've been working on in, in France for so long. Um, but, boy, that's expensive that's <laughs> yeah, and tough. Um, all right, I want to talk about uh, water purification. Right for that, I thought we'd talk about the difference between causation and correlation. <laughs> so, and uh, you can help me on this, Dr. Laura, but I had uh, the flu injection on Friday and people may, may hear my voice is not quite as uh, the dulcet tones, the velvetiness is gone, um, <laughs> it's wrecked. And uh, so let's talk about causation first. Causation is that I have a sore arm. That's causation. Correlation is that I probably was sick when I got the flu injection and now I'm sick because of whatever I had before I got the flu injection, not because of the flu injection. So uh, anyway, if you're um, thinking of getting it and you're hearing stories about people getting sick because of the flu injection, 
That's correlation, not causation. Right, Laura? Yep, nicely done. Yeah. So uh, anyway, uh, pushing on before I start <laughs> coughing. Um, it, it's something that's really fascinating to me is when you see uh, engineering groups and so forth looking at technology that's basically, you know, thousands of years old and, and saying, well, you know, why did they use this? How did it work? And can we optimize it using modern techniques to be even better than it was back then? And if, if you go back to even like, you know, Aristotle and so forth, they, they knew that if you took water, uh, dirty water, and you allowed the sun to heat it and, you know, evaporate it, then what happened was the evaporated water would go up and if you could somehow capture that and then allow it to condense back into into water again, all the contaminants and the crap that was in the water before would be gone. And you could purify water this way in a very specific, you know, clean, simple way without electricity or burning something or anything else. It was really easy. Um, of course, you know, there's a lot of places around the world where this sort of technology would be really important and really valuable because, you know, if you... You look at basically one of the main reasons that we live so long these days, it's because in the Western countries, we have clean water supplies, and that is huge. And you're an immunologist, Laura, you know all about this stuff, right? Mm -hmm. um, so anyway, there's this group uh, from uh, the University of Buffalo School of Engineering and Applied Sciences that have been working on this particular evaporative model where basically what they take is these, they're, they're sort of, they're draped bits of paper that are coated with black carbon. So, and what happened is they let the water in this device heat up um, because of this this black carbon absorbs the sunlight so it, it warms up but it's at a very odd angle so it's not flat to the sun so the sun's not hitting it straight on it's sort of striking it at, an, at a bit of an angle and what this means is it doesn't get overly hot and it doesn't bleed energy out into the environment. So when, when people look at the efficiency of these devices, they look at how much energy they absorb and how much energy they lose and how much clean water they can produce as a result, and they, they give it an efficiency term. With this particular model they've been using, they have this sort of angled black-coated paper, and, and because of the angle, the, the stuff doesn't get as hot as it normally would. And they're finding that it's almost giving off no energy to the surrounding environment at all. So its efficiency is really, really high. And they've managed to... Um, they, if they scale this up, well, you know, you can scale this up easily because it's a really simple device. You just literally make it bigger. It's not like more electronics or anything. There's no electronics in this. But they can actually generate between 20 or about 10 to 20 litres of clean water a day with one of these devices if it was about the size of like a bar fridge. So if you think about that, like this, this is not a heavy object. It's a relatively, you know, lightweight object with simple materials that uh, one of them about the size of a bar fridge could give you 20 litres of drinking water. Now, I'm not sure, I'm not a, I'm not a, a medical doctor, but 20 litres of drinking water, I figure, can probably suffice about Seems 10 people. Good. Keep about 10 people alive a day. Um, clean water. Like, so this is purifying, you know, muddy, crappy, disgusting water into clean water using a device without electricity, just using the sunlight. Okay, and all I'm imagining piece, sort of pieces of paper on an angle, not paper, mm. carbon wrapped around it. Yeah. That's it? Yeah, that's pretty much it. There's some, there's some funky design engineering in the shape and so forth, but it's not the, overly, overly complicated. When you say black carbon, then basically it's actually carbon black, right? It's a, yeah, it's coated. So it's, yeah. it's the same thing that we put in tires. Yeah. Yeah, so cheap. Yeah. Yeah, really cheap. Anyway, um, great stuff coming out of uh, University of Buffalo there. I think this is um, one of those things where if you, if you look at these sorts of technologies, they're often the ones where we have an abundance in most places on the earth of sunlight. And if you can do this without the need for electronics or anything else, um, wow. Simple. Know, it's cool stuff. And it works. It's 2,000 years old, adding latest technology to it. And all of a sudden, the efficiency is like pretty much close to 100%. So there you go. 
All right, we're going to take a break for some music and we'll be back in the moment with our first guest today. We're going to be talking about some really funky material science, so um, strap yourselves in. You're listening to Triple R. You are listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3 Triple R FM in Melbourne, Australia. Oh, welcome back, everybody. You are listening to Triple R. We're just having an interesting conversation in the studio here with um, Dr. Laura trying to work out whether she's actually a millennial. Apparently not. Or, or Gen Y, right? I mean, <laughs> yeah, I think uh, Gen Y. Baby boomer? I think I can pass for a millennial. Let's go back to a millennial. <laughs> <coughs> anyway, in the studio... <coughs> excuse me, folks, while I cough up my flu injection. Um, <coughs> in the studio with us, though, is Rebecca Oral Trigg. She is a PhD student in the ARC Centre of Excellence for the Future of Low Energy Electronics Technology at Monash University. Rebecca, welcome to Triple R. Thank you for having me. It's great to see you. And your work is, I mean, Ray's going to go nuts about this because he's a chemical engineer, so he's going to freak out. Good, but good. Yeah. One of the things I found fascinating is there's so many ways in which people are synthesizing materials at the moment, but you in particular are using liquid metals. Talk us through yes. what we mean by that. I mean, I, a lot of people would imagine that all these things are made by heating up metals and, you know, just making yeah. making materials so so what's different about your approach yeah, to so liquid, liquid metals? metals basically are metals that are liquid at room temperature right. uh, mercury is probably the one that people are most familiar with um, or basically we can take metals that are solid and melt them basically um, and yeah lots of currently lots of what we call nanomaterials so materials that are basically on the order of 10 to the minus 9 meters thick mm-hmm. uh, currently are made with really big machines and like you know very very complicated processes and they while they make very good materials they're not really kind of i suppose that commercial yet and so one of the things we do with liquid metals is we actually use the processes that they naturally undergo okay so uh one of the things that we um do a lot of is we make metal oxides the so one people are most familiar with if you've gone outside will be rust so that's Mm. iron oxide and that happens basically when iron is exposed to oxygen um, and when you have liquid metals, because they themselves have some really cool properties, like they're conductive, um, some of them magnetic, um, but also when they're liquid, you can actually use them as a reaction environment themselves. Okay, right. Yeah. So, um, <coughs> so you're mixing in the metal Yeah, itself. basically, yeah. 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 Um, Without heating it up. Yeah, we can do it mm. without heating it up, yeah. So a very common one we use is a metal called gallium, mm-hmm. um, which... It basically melts at around 30 degrees Celsius. Okay. And we can actually alloy other metals into that to make some really cool things. Um, and most of those are the oxides, but you can also make other things like uh, sulfides when you react them with uh, like sulfur or hydrogen sulfide gas. Um, or the other cool thing is you can make the oxides and then turn them into other things, which can be very useful as well. So so when, when we think about making things out of... Um Liquid metals. I mean, one of the things you mentioned was the size of yes. the nanometer size. Yeah. So, I mean, just for people's perspective, the human hair is 50,000 nanometers wide. Yes. So, you're yeah. talking about a few nanometers. Yeah, so, so I'm talking about a few billionths of a meter. Mm. It's, and, it's quite hard to conceptualize. Yeah. And this, yeah. is, this is a few atoms wide sort of stuff around that. Yeah, yeah. yeah or in um, some of it. Uh, some of our work, we're really trying to make atomically thin materials, so it's right. just one atom thick. One atom thick. Yeah. And with that, how is it that the... Well, the, my question really is around why would you use the liquid metal sort of approach as opposed to a more 
top-down, I will deliver one atom at a time to build up a structure? Well, really, I guess it's kind of the the scalability, but also the time constraints. Uh, mm. Because if you're depositing one atom at a time, yep. you know, that takes a lot of resources for one. Um, but also, you know, it takes a really long time. Whereas when we take advantage of the natural processes, um, it's really, it's very quick. Um, and you can basically make lots and lots of these materials in a very short space of time. Mm. So, so I, I just want to back up about where oh. you said you might make a thin material. Mm. So if we're making, you could think a coating or a thin film, that's in semiconductor <coughs> processing. That's how we make microchips where you can lay down, you, if you have a flat surface using complicated machinery and normally high vacuums and like plasmas and cool things like that, or electron beams, you can, you can deposit atomically, not individual atomics, but very thin nanometer films. They have to be on something. They're stuck to something. Now, what you're talking about is this area of 2D materials. And I would like you to, the, the, the thing to point out is you can make something that's flat and atomically thin. It's not stuck to anything. Well, yeah, we have yeah. a couple of processes for that, actually. Uh, so the main method that we use is something that we call the bubbling technique, where you basically take a small amount of the liquid metal and uh, bubble just air through it. Um, and it the metal reacts with the oxygen in the air and then you have a layer of water on top and basically the bubble bursts um, and with the sheet with the 2d materials already formed because they've reacted already um, and it just floats up into the water and you can basically collect them and put them on whatever you like mm. uh, another method we have is a method of printing directly onto a substrate which is a method we call touch printing um, which is basically where you take a small uh, like droplet of the metal um, and we put that in a very low oxygen environment, so say 10 parts per million, um, and that forms a skin just on the top, and then we can actually uh, just touch the whatever substrate you want, and it will come off and stick. So, so how how yeah. does how do the properties of these materials change when you get to that that sort of thickness? Because one of the things that I suppose is we think about metals, we think of hard objects. So if you get it really thin, I'd be thinking brittle. Is that is that the case or are these... Well, no, they're often quite flexible, actually, because yeah. it's not the metal itself, it's the metal oxide. Mm. Um, and so one of the things we're looking at is uh, printing on, say, like a flexible glass or flexible right, mica. Yeah. And so it's one of those things where we could have maybe flexible electronics. So you... Um, Say, like uh, in uh, phones currently, you have uh, an indium tin oxide, okay. uh, which is used in touchscreens and things like that. So if we could have something of that that's just one atom thick, then it could be bendable and stretchable, or maybe not stretchable, but bendable, yeah, bendable definitely. Bendable. Yeah. Um, so that opens a whole range of uh, other technologies and avenues mm. up, mm. yeah. So your, your description of your bubbler, where you're bubbling a bubble through a liquid metal and it bursts and you get this cool coating that breaks into pieces, um, that means you, you're constraining how it can grow. So yes. a lot of metal oxides from, say, a, this, the ways they might do a nanofabrication, they can't make them thin films. Are there materials where you're making something you don't normally find in nature? Definitely, yeah. These ones are uh, ones that we really don't find in nature at all. Um, so one of the things I was working with was tin oxide. Um, and there's a couple of forms of that. There's tin monoxide and tin dioxide. And what we found is that when it's in nature, uh, it's basically all tin dioxide. It's, that's just what forms. Um, but 
with these processes, we can actually catch it in those very early stages and make tin monoxide. So basically by uh, adjusting the conditions, we can make things that really don't exist in nature. Mm. That's super cool. One of the things that um, I love when you get down to the nanoscale is how these materials change. And as you say, they're flexible. The one that sticks with me is gold, and it's not gold in colour when you get to a certain degree. It changes colour. It's red, yeah. Yeah, it changes colour, which is like so counterintuitive to our entire life experience. With with that with that idea that many of these materials have very freaky and amazing properties, when you get down to these sorts of scales, is is there the potential for us to sort of offset the need for some of the rare earths and other other materials that we don't have much of when you get to this sort of specificity with production? Quite possibly, yeah. So a lot of the materials that we've looked at are uh, something called topological insulators, mm-hmm. which is where if you have a lump of it, the majority of it is going to be an insulating material, but the very surface layer, which is the layer we're interested in, is actually uh, conductive. Okay. And so when, because it's only a single layer, it's conductive only in two dimensions because wow, nice. the electrons yeah. can't go further into the material. So it has a very low resistivity. Um, and so that's really interesting because, well, I mean, you were talking about the, the helium shortage before. Um, so if we could have very low uh, resistivity materials at, sort of more like room temperatures um then yeah it might lessen our need for those kind of uh really extraordinary materials that mm. are very difficult to find currently. yeah yeah now rebecca you i mean people probably I'm not sure if they heard my intro but you're a phd student so yes, you're yes. into some pretty cool stuff already yep um how long have you got to go uh most of it i'm only, oh, wow. I'm only three months in wow. yeah so yeah. it's it's very new but yeah, it's no. good, yeah well look it sounds like a, a really interesting set of projects and this stuff um i think is just yeah it's fascinating if you, if you look at the history of how we've just changed the way we produce materials over the last of the 30, 40 years, I mean, again, we're getting into that, yeah. that acceleration of changing the way we produce materials, again, with the sort of work your group is doing. So thanks so much for coming, coming in and chatting to us. And maybe we'll talk to you in three years when you've um, done... When some, I'm done, done yeah. Actually, when <laughs> you've great, actually yeah. done some work. Yeah, when, I, yeah, when yeah. I'm actually a doctor, yeah, it'll be... Yeah. <laughs> that sounds great. Um, Rebecca Oral Trigg is a PhD student in the ARC Centre of Excellence for Future Low Energy Electronics Technology at Monash University. We're going to take a break for um, some important station announcements, folks, and we'll be back in just a few moments uh, with our second guest for today talking about some funky new work in epilepsy research. You are listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3RRR FM in Melbourne, Australia. You are listening to Triple R. It's Einstein and Gogo. In the studio with us now is Professor Ingrid Sheffer. She's the head of paediatrics at Austin Health and also a professor at the University of Melbourne and has been on the show several times before. Ingrid, welcome back. Thanks a lot, Shane. Now, I saw uh, during the week, every now and then uh, what happens is uh, universities and hospitals and so forth send Triple R these amazing press releases and I get about 50 of them a week and I look at about two of them and then one <laughs> of them excites me and guess what, Ingrid? It was yours. Um, but uh, you... I mean, you do this amazing work with epilepsy, and I, I want to sort of just give people a little bit of background on your work because you, you discovered the first gene link to le- epilepsy. Am I remembering that correctly? Absolutely yeah, correct. There you go. Well and, done. And, <laughs> we, we, I mean, that was a while back, wasn't it? Yeah, it was back in '95, and um, Professor John Mully from Adelaide with us and a group from uh, Germany, we found the first gene for a milder form of epilepsy uh, back in '95, and mm. now it's just exploded with uh, the new next generation right. sequencing. Yeah. How many genes are associated with epilepsy now that we know of? Uh, look, that sort of changes weekly, but it's yeah. about 400. Wow. Yeah. And, and is it one of those things where 
you just have one of them and have epilepsy or is it like combinations? Like oh, good question. Um, we've had the most success where it's a single gene. Mm. So um, <coughs> they're easy. You might track them in families or in the severe epilepsies where I have a major interest. Many of the children just have a new gene in them, a new gene mutation. We all have the gene, right. but the yeah. mutation's new in the child. Um, but we're really keen to get a handle on the commoner forms of epilepsy which may follow what we call complex inheritance where you have multiple genes involved with or without environmental factors and we're just tip of the iceberg there mm. really. Yeah I'm sure. Now can we talk a bit about the, the sort of range of epilepsies because I'm not sure people are, are sort of well versed in that because you, there is quite a range of the severity that you can get so can you sort of run us through that range and, and, sure. what, and what it looks like for, for people with various levels? So of there's huge range of severity and many types of seizures and we tend to think about people in terms of which epilepsy syndrome they have okay. and that's a constellation of seizure types EEG or their brainwave tracing features um, often goes hand in hand with learning or, or uh, cognitive difficulties or normal intellect MRI features so you have lots of regular people and regular jobs who've got epilepsy often well controlled um, and then you have the more severe epilepsies where people have got very frequent seizures and they're not learning normally and they have intellectual disability. Mm. And some of the ones, some of the real severe ones though, I mean, this leads to serious health problems yeah. like in death, yeah. is, that, is that right? Absolutely and um, there are many of those now. Uh, we did a review in 2015 that had 60 genes and now it'd be at least three times that. Uh, and they're really, these are typically begin in infancy or childhood. The child has uh, seizures like uh, epileptic spasms. Their development slows or actually goes backwards mm. and they end up with anywhere from profound, severe intellectual disability, some may be mild and some might be moderate. So very serious diseases and with these diseases they often have other features like autism spectrum disorder right. cerebral palsy and they often carry a higher mortality hmm. and with the sets of genes that you're identifying and then the kind of groups of ep epilepsies from mild to severe for, for severe epilepsy for example are there networks of genes that you can identify that will sort of tell whether you're going to get a severe type of ep epilepsy for example i wish it was that simple so mm. like for example the most famous epilepsy gene is called scn1a and it encodes the sodium channel uh, subunit the alpha 1 subunit and we know that many of the children with the mutation of that gene have a disorder called dravet syndrome which is sort of the poster child of this field because about 90 percent of dravet syndrome kids or adults have a mutation of this sodium channel gene on the other hand we know that you can have a mutation of the same gene and have a very mild disorder called GEFS plus where you have just some febrile seizures. Can I just give a little little advertisement actually? Mm. There's an amazing group of parents, um, many who I know really well, and they've called themselves Genetic Epilepsy Team Australia. Right. And they are running their own conference about the science of these disorders across all of them um, on the 26th of May and it's free and they're called GETA, G-E-T-A, and uh, if you go on the website, they're really keen for everyone around Australia and New Zealand. Anyone can come along, I think. Um, and it's amazing to see this critical mass of 
intelligent parents leading yeah. the way. This, I mean, but that's you described it as a scientific conference, but this is a public conference by the it's sounds a, of things. Yeah, absolutely, which is it's a even parent. more impressive. It yeah. is, it is, and I'm so impressed. And they've all got children with these severe diseases, but they're sort of getting together different genes, but the concepts are similar. So you find your mutation, you go with the scientists and develop um, a stem cell model or an animal model, you then look for new drugs, and then you try and treat these animal models and see how they go, and then you have to come back to people like me to try and think about how we can trial that treatment in these children but they're devastating diseases so we're, we're all desperate mm. to find something. Ingrid let's talk a bit about the the work that's just come out because this is this is really fascinating I, w I was not aware of this sort of link between you know a, a family having a, a first child with um, with severe you know one of the very severe forms of epilepsy and the potential for a second child to have it I mean talk us through how that works I mean what the genetics are and and what the likelihood is. Yeah so um this paper was really the fruit of about five years of hard labour and we did it with uh, Dr Heather Mefford and Candace Myers from uh, University of Washington in Seattle. <coughs> we've collaborated with them for many years and with them we've discovered these new genes um, as have other groups around the world in these children with very severe epilepsies. So what changed was the technology and the ability to look to see if... Um, one of the parents might carry the gene mutation. Now, you can imagine if you've got a child with one of these terribly serious diseases and the parents are given um, a low recurrence risk, usually about 1%, mm -hmm. because they know, the geneticists know that there is a risk of uh, this mosaicism. And mosaicism means that you have two populations of cells. You have your normal cells and then a smaller, or usually a, yeah, a smaller proportion of your cells have a mutation. And that mutation may mean maybe in, say, 5% of your cells. So it means that you actually are unaffected. You're fine, hmm. like any of us. But the problem is if those 5% are in your eggs or your sperm, when you make a baby, you might give that baby one of the mutant cells and then that baby will have that in every cell in their body mm, right. and they'll have the disease. Yeah, and so how likely is it that a family will have a second child with severe epilepsy once they've had the first? So that's almost an impossible question to answer because these um, children are so sick that many families are way too scared to have mm. another child right, and yeah. their whole lives are taken over by caring for their sick child, as are all the grandparents and everyone yeah, around yep. them. And um, so... It's really hard because you have that changing what happens within the family. The mothers can't work or the father, one of the parents can't work, etc. So the parents have been given a 1% recurrence risk, but you can imagine when they come along with their next child and say it's just their second child and they say, oh, I'm worried about this child, I don't think it's quite right, and then it emerges, you know, this is at three or four months, and then it emerges over time that, in fact, their second child has the same devastating well, disease yeah. as the first child. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's it's your worst nightmare. And um, I have a wonderful family in Canberra that were very um, kind and went on the media about this when the story came out. And there's a, an incredibly um, sad picture of these of the parents with their two little wheelchairs because both children mm. are profoundly impaired. So what we want to do is stop that. We want to save families from yep. that nightmare. And with our research, what we've done is we've 
tried to drill down to see if one of the parents might carry uh, the mutation at a low level. And if the parents don't carry it, then their recurrence risk is, is virtually zero. Right. But if they do carry it, then, of course, their recurrence risk is very different. So, so can we just unpack that for a moment? So if they, if they don't carry it, that means the child's chance of getting epilepsy is just that, that sort of random possibility of some kind of you know defective bit of dna that's not doing its job right and you know just a a normal mutation that anyone can get Mm -hmm. um just completely randomly they have the same chance as anyone in society of the same background risk exactly that we all have which is about four percent about four percent whereas if if they are carrying this then they're as you say that it goes into every cell in their body and what's their risk at that point well then they'll have the disease for sure and the parent only has it in say six percent of their cells so they're fine but if you have it in your every cell, then you've got this devastating disease. Mm. And so with, with the new work, can you can work out whether or not that's the case for the parents? Is we that... can work it down to about the 1% mark. It's okay. not 100%, mm-hmm. but what we did was we looked at 123 trios, which means affected child, mum and dad, and we had to know the mutation in the affected child. So in these trios, we had 33 different genes that the child had a known mutation in one of 33 genes Mm -hmm. and we looked at that child's mutation in their own parents 200 times so we looked 200 times in the child 200 times in mum 200 times in dad the first thing that we found was that three of the children were mosaic. Right. So we found that they didn't have them in every cell. They had them in 30, 40% of their cells, which means something important for the parents as well. It's that the parents won't have it because it started newly in the child. Yeah. So the child had already started to form as a person and this mutation happened, just bad luck that yep. we all have. And then this child had enough to have this devastating disease. But it means mum and dad actually have no recurrence risk. So it's yeah. important that yeah. way. And yeah, no, go ahead. Shall I keep yeah. going? Mm, and yeah. then in the remaining 120 across these 33 genes, we found that we had 10 out of 120 left uh, that had a parent who was mosaic. And that was from about 1.9% of their cells up to about 30% of their cells. Right. And so that means that... Um, yeah, sorry, Rick, you know, jump in. I, I was just curious about the mosaic aspect of it. And in, in, in you said a child had 30 or 40% of their cells. Is there some guide or feel for how, what percentage of your, yeah. your cells have to have this gene mutation versus not? And, and, and does that affect the scale of the disease or is it binary at that point? I wish we knew that. Um, the, the sort of straightforward answer is that we're mosaic to different degrees in different tissues. So you could be 30, we looked at blood and saliva and they were broadly commensurate but it may be that you're 30% in your blood but you're 50% in your brain or etc. So the, the, the answer is that we presume the very severely affected child has higher levels in brain um, and it all depends on the timing of the mutation with embryology, so when the body formed and when the mutation Mm. occurred. Um, So we can't predict that at the moment. Mm. So, Ingrid, normally when I hear these sorts of um, biomedical stuff, I think, that's great, you know, in 15 years people will start uh, benefiting from this. But this this sounds to me like the sort of information you need to get out across the world like yesterday so that families can can start benefiting from this. Is Is it at that point? 
I think it absolutely is. Uh, it always takes a while for the community to ramp mm. up, but um, the technology is already out there, and I think that it should start yesterday. Um, and basically, or maybe tomorrow, basically, mm. if you had a child like this and you knew the child's mutation, you would go to the lab and they would test that mutation in our study 200 times but lots of the studies now are going more than that like a thousand times and you would look for very low levels and if you did find it in one parent that would change your genetic counselling to that mm. family about recurrence risk and you can imagine if their first child is like that has this very severe disease then they're really scared about a second child and I always think it's so important for families if they can have other um typical children around because it's good for the child who's sick it's good for the mum and dad so uh, i think this is a game changer mm. and i think it should change practice rapidly well ingrid look it's spectacular work and uh, you, i mean you've been at the the front line of this for for a while now you were talking about the 90s with the first stuff you did but um but this just continues that great work congratulations and um i have no doubt that this will be beneficial to so many people around the world so i hope you take great heart in knowing that and and keep up the good work thanks so much Shane. professor ingrid sheffer is the head of pediatrics at austin health and a professor at the university of melbourne we're going to take a break for some music folks and we'll be back with a little bit more science news before we finish the show you are listening to a podcast from community radio 3 triple fm in melbourne australia yeah, welcome back, everybody. You're listening to Einstein and Gogo. Just a quick correction. Uh, our first guest today, Rebecca Oral Trigg, I announced as being from Monash University. She's actually based at RMIT, but the Centre of Excellence crosses many locations. So, um, yeah, I screwed up. Anyway, <laughs> she takes was awesome. More, takes more than one person to be excellent at more than one place. Exactly. <laughs> she was awesome. So, uh, RMIT, no doubt, will want to claim her. Dr. Ray, you've got some more news for us on rivers. I, I do. Uh, this is on the lower Mississippi River. Um, and, and the question is around, you know, the Mississippi River has been in the news in the last 10 years for some floods. Mm. Perhaps we remember the hurricane mm. that flooded New Orleans. Mm. And that was the Mississippi River flooding. So, the question of the study, and this is a. Um, uh, a, a group led by uh, uh, Samuel Morantz, um was was trying to understand why is it flooding? Is it climate change? You know, when the Mississippi River is sensitive to things like El, the El Nino current, and I had to look this one up. There's also the Atlantic multi-decadal oscillation. Yep, one and, of my favorites. And, 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 and so <laughs> these cause rivers to flood. But um, the, the, the catch of studying rivers over time is a bit of a challenge because as people, as society, we futz with rivers all the time. Yep. We manage them, we engineer them. This in call includes building dams and spillways and and straightening rivers out. Yeah. And, and diversions. And, and diversions requiring channels. What we do there is we often disconnect a river with its floodplain. Mm, mm. And um, because we hello, hello Brisbane. Yes. Yeah. Um, and, and and so it's really hard to say. Well, is a river flooding more from climate change or is it flooding more because of us? And so. For the lower Mississippi, they went, well, this is kind of a difficult thing to do because we've been managing that river in one way or another for 150 years. Um, it's managed in what you could probably call global best practice for river management. You know, all the things they're doing in lower Mississippi, they're doing a bunch of other rivers. Mm. And so what this group did was they, um, they embarked on a field I didn't know existed. It's kind of cool. It's called paleo flood hydrology. Nice. So hydrology is, of course, the study of rivers. And the paleo flood part is... Um, what they actually did is they went back through the tree record and sedimentation record because tree rings look different when they're flooded. And the sedimentation record, 
to actually look and map when floods happened for over the last 500 years. Hmm. And, and then look where the differences came in the last 150. And, and the real big thing that they look at or that, that's easy to explain is when the, the magnitude of a 100-year flood. So a 100-year flood just means it has a 1% chance of the river going over its banks completely and flooding an area. Um, and, and, and what they did was is they said in the last 100, over the last 150 years, the magnitude of the 100-year flood has gone up by about 20% in its scale. So how bad of a flood it is, how big of it is, has gone up about 20% in the last 500 years. Mm. And it, you can really see the difference after the last 150 years after we started fiddling with the, with the rivers. Yeah. And they said, okay, well, based on is it climate change or how do you attribute this magnitude and why does it flood so badly? About 25% of that, that increase, they said, well, that's probably from climate change. About three-quarters of why the floods are worse is from river management. Wow. Yeah. Uh, and, 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 and either, either way, it's us. Either yeah, way, it's us. Yeah, the bottom line yeah, is yeah. we've screwed yeah. it up. <laughs> it's not easy to manage a river. And, and what happens is by disconnecting it to its floodplain, you're also starting to see uh, the river can't deal with floodwaters. Uh, you still, even though you're trying to protect the land, by disconnecting a river with your floodplain, you still get coastal loss of land. Mm. Uh, you get nutrient loss and hypoxia. And that um, our river management is not doing so well on dealing with big floods and actually is making them worse. And that the suggestion is going forward, you really need to connect your river management because you can't stop doing it. People are living on the floodplain. Yeah. So you've got to come up with a solution, but you do need to come up with ones <clears throat> that connect the river to its floodplain. To try to mediate the impact of floods. Yeah. Doesn't mean climate change isn't a problem, but we're not tracking well and helping that problem. Yeah. And that's gonna that part's gonna get worse. So the twenty five percent may become fifty percent from climate change in ten years' time. Yeah, they, they but, expect uh, the cost is gonna go up in how we yeah. manage these. So we're things. gonna get the so river management sounds yeah. like is more like river mismanagement. Um, we need to get that part. Yeah. But I any, anything that has the word paleo in it, I just love. Paleo I flood hydrology. Yeah, yeah, paleo flood hydrology. There's a field, folks, to get into. Uh, you've been listening to Einstein and Gergo. Thank you, Dr. Laura. Great to see you somewhat Pleasure, uh, Dr. Shane. rested and not concussed and not, not concussed, on the plane. Not jet-lagged. Not jet-lagged. <laughs> it's awesome to have you in the studio, Dr. Ray. Thanks so much. Thanks. It was fun. And Liv's been doing our Twitter feed. She's been typing in the red and knots over there, folks, so I hope you're following us on Twitter. I'm Dr. Shane. Thank you so much for listening to Einstein and Gogo today. We will chat to you again next week. This has been a podcast from Free Triple R, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.